The One Hundred Years' War, the de Guiscalin period, England and Castile's relations to 1372. And when John of Gaunt took over the government of the Principality of Aquitaine at the end of 1370, he took over with it the traditional responsibility of the officers of the Principality for the conduct of England's relations with the kingdoms of the Spanish Peninsula. From England's point of view, the situation could not have been worse. Edward III and the Black Prince had backed the losing side in the Castilian Civil War, as a result of which the richest and most powerful of the Iberian kingdoms had become a French protectorate. The prince had continued to foment domestic opposition to Henry of Testamaro's rule in hope of recovering some of his financial losses, but that policy simply made the position worse. Two years after murdering his rival, Pedro I, at Montiel in 1369, Henry of Testamara had established a large measure of control over his kingdom. His many enemies within and beyond its borders had proved unable to act together, and he had prevailed over them separately. King of Portugal had suffered a series of humiliating defeats on land and sea before finally making peace in March of 1371. The King of Aragon had withdrawn from the fray. Within Castile, Henry's enemies had hung on to a number of fortresses from which they gradually extruded in the course of the year of 1370. Zamora fell in February, Cremona fell in May, and with it most of the surviving leaders of the resistance. The English had only one bargaining counter in the affairs of Castile. They were in possession of King Pedro's two surviving daughters, Costanza and Isabel who had been delivered up to the prince five years before as security for their father's debts and were currently living at Bayonne. The two girls were the children of Pedro's mistress, Maria de Padilla, and their legitimacy had once been a debatable issue. But in 1362, the Cortes of Castile, their parliament, had formally accepted Pedro's statement that he had been through a ceremony of marriage with their mother and accepted her children as his legal heirs. In his will, Pedro had declared that the eldest surviving daughter and her husband, should she have one, would inherit his kingdom. But there could be little doubt so far in that legal matter that if Pedro had been the rightful king of Castile, then the elder of the two girls, Costanza, was entitled to be queen. She was then 17 years old and wholly without political experience, but her birth alone ensured that she would become the standard bearer of the Imperio Galandos, as the supporters of the dead King Pedro were called. At some time in 1371, John of Gaunt decided to marry her. When and how this plan took shape in his mind is impossible to say. The Duke of Lancaster had been a widower since 1368, when his first wife, Blanche, had died at the age of 22. Gaunt was an ambitious, flamboyant man who was never likely to be satisfied by a secondary role reserved for the younger sons of the king. Like Louis of Anjou and the other ambitious dreamer, who he in many ways resembled, he wanted to carve out a principality for himself and to play a greater part in the politics of Europe. He might have become the King of Scotland if the idea had not been rejected by the Scottish Parliament in 1362. He already toyed, like Anjou, with the idea of asserting an ancient and rather technical claim to the county of Provence. To such a man, the prospect of becoming King of Castile in his wife's right was infinitely enticing. Gaunt must, must have consulted his father about it, but it is not a clear matter that England's strategic interests were uppermost in his mind for either of them. As for Constanza, her marriage can never have been a source of much personal happiness. It was a union of political convenience. Her relations with her new husband was always going to be distant and formal, but the marriage would give her what she wanted most, 
a champion who would avenge her father's death. Costanza was intensely loyal to his memory and surrounded by dispossessed Castilian noblemen and clerics who encouraged her resentments. Her marriage may well have been suggested by one of them, Juan Gutierrez, dean of Segovia. The conspiratorial Castilian cleric, who had been a confidant of King Pedro's and briefly as ambassador to the English court in 1369. He was almost certainly a member of Costanza's tiny court at Bayonne in 1371. Gutierrez was in due course emerge as John of Gaunt's Castilian secretary and chief advisor on the affairs of the peninsula. Dona Costanza and John of Gaunt were married probably at Roquefort on South Landis on the September the 8th, 1371. John of Gaunt's ambition to make himself king of Castile was to absorb most of his energies for the next 18 years. It was not an unrealistic project as it now seems. Henry of Testamara had imposed his will on almost all of Castile, but he was by no means secure on his throne. He had usurped it without the shadow of a claim and with the aid of an army composed mainly of French routiers. Doubtless long tenure would in due course bring home to the Testamara legitimacy and security. But for the time being, Henry's hold on the Castilian throne depended on continuing the presence of French captains in his service. Even after Bertrand de Guisquelin departed with his retinue in June of 1370, it was believed to be at least a thousand French men-at-arms serving in Castile, and the true number may actually have been larger. Yet Henry's dependence on them was a source of weakness as well as strength. Most of them were independent captains with few natural loyalties who had been recruited by de Guisquelin from the ranks of the great companies. Henry did his best to bind their interest to his cause. He poured wealth and titles over them. Pierre de Villeneuve, a rich man and a count of Rebedeau, Bernard de Berin, a professional brigand and an illegitimate son of the Count of Foix, was the Count of Mendicelli, Arnaud de Solier, who had been a notorious ba- who led a notorious band of routiers in Languedoc under the nickname of La Limousine, was the Lord of Viapando. These men were unlikely to stay if ever the flow of largesse dried up. Costanza, no doubt, lacked allies in, Cape, in Castile capable of fighting the French on equal terms, but she was a potent symbol. Her claims enjoyed a good deal of latent support among Henry's subjects with a change in his fortune or the departure of the French protectors could be expected to bring to the surface. The Cortes of Toro claimed in 1371 that there were still many towns in the kingdom where venomous disputes were provoked by the friends of the tyrant who called himself king. There were disturbances in Mercia and probably in other towns, whose authors were found in the letters of John of Gaunt and his possession. The province of Galicia to the northwest had supported King Pedro at the lowest periods in his fortune and had never learned to accept his successor. At the end of the year 1371, a fresh rebellion fomented by the Imperio Glandos based in Portugal, was to throw over the authority of Henry's officers and put the province once again in the hands of King Pedro's partisans. Henry of Testamara was surrounded by external enemies whose hostility was constrained only by fear and by treaties of convenience. The kingdom of Aragon, Catalonia, with its great maritime wealth and powerful navy, had been a leading light in most of the anti-Castilian coalitions of the 1350s and the 1360s. Her cautious ruler had privately concluded by 1371 that Henry of Testamara was there to stay, but he was too canny to admit the change of policy to the outside world, and no doubt he would have been there for the pickings if Henry's government had collapsed. 
Navarre remained a critical piece in the Spanish checkerboard, for it controlled all the passes of the Western Pyrenees and still occupying a substantial slice of Castilian territory, which it had seized during the blackest period of the Civil War. However, the most dangerous enemy of the Testamora Castillo was Portugal, which was gradually emerging as a force in the affairs of the peninsula. Now, the sources for this, the 100 Years' War, Chronicles by Foissart, the 100 Years' War by Perrois, the 100 Years' War by Nylans, and the 100 Years' War, Volume 3, A House Divided by Sumption. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.